Hello, this is Mike Dobson welcoming you again to the Anesthesia Compass podcast. This podcast continues on the theme of oxygen, which we started last time. And I want to be practical, so we'll be talking about concentrators, how to operate them, how to troubleshoot them, how to deliver the oxygen to the patient, and how to use your oxygen supplies in the most economical and efficient way. If you've never come across an oxygen concentrator and you find one in your hospital, here's how to identify it. Probably a rather featureless grey object, about 60 centimetres tall, with a wire coming out of the back, an oxygen tube coming out of the front, a flow meter, an on-off switch and a few LED lights. If you go around the back, there'll be an air entry point where room air goes in and it's usually covered by some kind of filter quite often black plastic foam. Most of the air going in this way is used to cool the motor and only about a fifth actually goes through the zeolite. To operate your concentrator you're going to plug it in and switch it on. You should then hear the compressor start up as a low hum and you'll probably find that at the same time the alarm sounds partly to show you that the alarm is working but also because on first start-up, the quality of oxygen produced will be low. It takes several minutes to build up the concentration to more than 90%, at which point any warning lights should go out and the alarm should stop sounding. The fact that you can't instantly produce a high concentration means that it's always a good idea to turn on the oxygen in advance of the patient's need for it. Once oxygen of an adequate concentration is flowing, Adjust the flow rate and connect whatever system you have for delivering oxygen to the patient or to the anaesthesia breathing system. Many concentrators will have some kind of small humidifier device attached to the front. These are typically not heated and don't do a very efficient job, although they may be of value particularly when you're using nasal prongs or a nasopharyngeal catheter. In some concentrators they're kept warm by placing them in the airflow that the cooling fan has driven through the concentrator. These sorts of humidifier frequently become opaque because of the calcium salts present in hard water, and the water itself is a potential source of infection. Use only clean water and change it regularly. For the purposes of humidification, it makes no difference whether the water is tap water, boiled or distilled, but Both boiled and distilled water will produce fewer calcium deposits, so maybe it's a good idea to use them. Don't be tempted to use the water that drips out of the air conditioner. It's notorious for harbouring harmful bacteria such as Legionella. There's one other feature of a concentrator that I have to mention, and it's probably the most important one. It's the manufacturer's name and model number. It's been shown time and time again that not all concentrators are equal. Some are robust, reliable, can tolerate some variations in electrical supply and can survive heat, dust and humidity. Many others can't. Some some years ago, the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists produced a specification for the sort of concentrator that would be tough enough to work in a difficult location and I'm going to reiterate that specification now. First, the electrical supply. The equipment must function normally 
in spite of mains fluctuations of 15% above or 20% below nominal mains rating. Second, the physical environment. The equipment must function normally between temperatures of 10 and 45 degrees Celsius and relative humidities of 0 to 100%. Third, maintenance, repairs and instructions. Local maintenance by hospital technicians is the norm. A clear set of instructions must be provided in the language of the country concerned. A manual of routine service operations and troubleshooting must similarly be provided. The manufacturer will provide an email address and a Skype address from which technical advice can be obtained. Finally, if any repairs during the guarantee period are required, and part of or all of the equipment has to be returned to the country of origin for such repairs, the manufacturer will bear the cost of shipping in both directions. That's quite a demanding specification. Not much of the equipment in Oxford could meet it. I hope you remember what I said in the first podcast, What's the Difference, about dual standards. The quality of electrical supply really is a big issue when dealing with any equipment that has an electric motor in it. In real life, the voltage incoming is often significantly lower than it's supposed to be. If you use that to drive an electric motor, two bad things happen. Firstly, the cooling fan runs more slowly. And secondly, because the motor is running more slowly, the current passing through the coils is passing for a longer period of time in each cycle. These factors will both produce overheating and potentially early burnout of the motor. The same thing happens even more quickly if equipment designed for use in the USA to run at 60 Hz is connected to a main supply at 50 Hz. You might ask which is the best concentrator, but I can no more give you a direct answer to that than I could if you asked me what's the best car. If you find yourself having to choose which concentrator to buy, my best advice will be to contact the organiser of one of the courses that I told you about in the last podcast. Or failing that, you could contact me at michael.dobson at nda.ox.ac.uk. Concentrator models and manufacturers change all the time. Back in the 1990s, I was helping with a concentrator project in Egypt, and the concentrators, which had been bought without any prior screening, were so unsatisfactory that when you turned them on, zeolite grains emerged into the stream of oxygen coming out. But 30 years later, concentrators made by the same manufacturer are among the best available anywhere. Let's deal next with how the oxygen is going to get from the concentrator or the cylinder and regulator to your patient. Most commonly in the UK hospital, this will be through a simple mask or possibly a Venturi type mask. There are a number of reasons why even in the UK this is not ideal. Patients receiving oxygen on the ward need to talk, eat, drink and cough and none of those things can be done effectively while you're wearing an oxygen mask. If you've ever tried wearing an oxygen mask, you'll have found that it's actually quite claustrophobic. 
And of course, if you're already in some respiratory distress, then anything that covers your nose and mouth will make you feel that you're not getting enough air. We've all seen patients with masks dangling under their chin or strapped to their forehead. Delivering oxygen into the nose not only takes away that feeling of claustrophobia, it also allows the patient to do all those other necessary things, as well as making more economical use of oxygen supplies. The devices used most commonly for nasal delivery are sets of nasal prongs, sized either for neonates, children or adults. They allow you to use a lower oxygen flow, typically 1 to 2 litres a minute. But if prongs are used for a long period of time, they do cause drying and soreness of the nose. You can reduce that with a bit of humidification, although of course gases passing through the nose will be fully humidified by the time they reach the lungs. That's what your nose is for. So the humidifier we're talking about here has a very different role from the one that sits in the airway of an intubated patient. In wealthy countries, nasal prongs are a single-use disposable item, but that isn't possible elsewhere in the world, and nasal prongs have lots of fiddly corners and connections that make them very difficult to clean and sterilise, even if you're prepared to turn what is labelled as a single-use item into a reusable item. In spite of these disadvantages, they are still widely used. The simplest and cheapest device is a single nasopharyngeal catheter. It needs to be placed carefully with its tip in the nasopharynx. If you can see it when the patient's mouth is wide open, it's probably too far in. The risk is, particularly in a small child, that it could migrate into the esophagus or even the stomach, resulting in gastric dilatation, respiratory embarrassment and possibly even catastrophic gastric rupture. You can really only use it safely with well-trained nursing staff who can ensure continuous correct placement. The big advantage of nasopharyngeal catheters is that they're widely available, very cheap and easy to clean. Whether you're using a single oxygen concentrator or a cylinder of oxygen, there may well be situations where you need to supply more than one patient at a time. It's possible to do that with a flow splitter, not, I emphasise, a homemade one, but something properly engineered which accurately divides a flow of oxygen into quantifiable streams, irrespective of any downstream resistance that you might find if one supply tube is much longer than another. For further technical details of flow splitters, concentrators and other oxygen equipment, I have to refer you to the WHO UNICEF technical specifications and guidance for oxygen therapy. When I tell you it has 164 pages, you'll understand why I'm not going into the details here. But you can get it as a free internet download from UNICEF if you need to. The ISBN number, hope you've got a pencil ready, is 978 dash nine two dash four dash one five one six nine one dash four. I'm not going to say that again. Most of you don't need to hear it. Anesthetists are famously distrustful of equipment. You've turned your concentrator on and it's humming away nicely in the corner of the room. And you can see the ball in the flow meter indicating that some gas is flowing. But how do you know it's actually producing oxygen? Even if you have no monitoring equipment, 
you can look at the clinical effects. As one of my colleagues in Oxford used to say, if they're blue and go pink, you must be doing something right. Of course, if you've got a pulse oximeter, you can make the same observation in a rather more scientific way. Actually, every concentrator has a built-in oxygen sensor. It's probably not the fuel cell type that you're used to, because fuel cells need regular replacement, and those replacements might not be available. Most concentrators have a simple sensor that calculates the oxygen concentration by measuring the speed of sound in the product gas. It's accurate within a couple of percentage points either way, which is fine for our purposes. If you want an external reference, you can use a fuel cell sensor, and if you do that, just as a regular weekly check, your fuel cell will last a lot longer than if you leave it in the gas feed continuously. The gold standard is a paramagnetic analyzer, but paramagnetic analyzers don't do well if they get bumped or knocked or dropped, since they contain delicate glass bowls. Finally, one manufacturer, Invercare, produces an external speed of sound oxygen monitor, which in addition can verify the flow of pressure and pressure of oxygen output, although I would personally regard a flow meter as more reliable. Now we get to the interesting bit, when things go wrong. Let's start with the commonest thing first. Your concentrator suddenly stops and the alarm goes off. It's probably stopped because the concentration of oxygen fell below 70%, and the concentration fell because the inlet filter has become blocked. Concentrators have an inlet filter to take up most of the dust in the air, and it gets blocked in dusty places. It's usually designed so that it can be easily removed, and it needs to be washed out with water and squeezed dry as often as necessary, which in dusty conditions could mean every day. That's about the easiest service manoeuvre you'll ever come across, and certainly the most effective. Because block filters are so common and so easily fixed, the concentrator is programmed to shut down at 70% to emphasise that something has to be done. Now. It goes on strike. Of course, the other reason your machine might suddenly stop is that the mains power has failed. Here's a clue. Did the lights go out? Are the fluorescents flickering? Maybe the incoming voltage has dropped below the level at which the machine can operate. The UNICEF specification is that concentrators should tolerate voltages 10% below rated. WFSA was a little bit braver and suggested 20%. But the reality is that up to 40% is not unknown. And if this happens, the machine will almost certainly shut down. One Nigerian city at the end of a long power line found that its incoming voltage, nominally 240 volts, was in fact 40 volts. Small concentrators don't have a reserve tank. There's a small buffering tank whose main function is to stop the flow suddenly jumping when flow switches between zeolite columns. This tank will probably continue to deliver 2 or 3 litres a minute for a minute or two after mains failure. You need to have an oxygen backup for that reason. Effective backup can either focus on backing up the electricity or the gas. Starting with the electricity, the hospital may have its own generator and hopefully this will be one that cuts in automatically whenever the mains fails without the need for a manual startup procedure. 
since a manual startup is associated with significant delay if the technician is not sitting beside the generator when the power goes off. Some hospitals will have a battery inverter system to supply some protected electrical circuits in a few key areas, such as the operating theatres and intensive care. That will provide effective backup, provided the system is in good order and is regularly checked. The third method of electrical backup is to have an un individual uninterruptible power supply device. That's called a UPS. You plug the UPS into the wall socket and the concentrator into the UPS. A UPS costs a few hundred dollars and will automatically provide an AC power source in the event of mains failure or if the incoming electrical supply is of inadequate or harmful quality. As an alternative or additional backup, you could back up the oxygen itself. If you have access to a few cylinders of oxygen, keep them for this purpose alone. If you don't have any cylinders at all, it's possible to buy a low-pressure oxygen tank from Diamedica and attach this through a small compressor to the outlet of your concentrator when it's not being used for a patient. The compressor will increase the pressure to 5 atmospheres, so a 20-litre volume tank, that's the size of a tea urn, can store 100 litres of oxygen, enough for an hour of oxygen therapy or of anaesthesia. The small concentrators I've been talking about were originally designed for people's homes, where they would run continuously for six months at a time, without interruption or attention. That equates to a service interval of about 5,000 hours, and at that service, normally, it's just a case of looking at the filters. If you serviced your car every 5,000 hours, you'd be doing 150,000 miles between services. I say that to give you an idea of the reliability of these machines. Every concentrator has got a clock on it to show me how many hours it's run. Provided the filters are kept clean, there's no reason it shouldn't run much longer than 5,000 hours. And if you're using it in the operating theatre, it's unlikely to be running more than 50 hours a week. Internal work is quite likely to be required after about 20,000 hours, but it can be done in the hospital workshop by a suitably trained person. I did find a concentrator in Zambia Hospital, Kampala, that had clearly been right round the clock, as to say it had run more than 100,000 hours, which was the maximum the clock could show, and that's equivalent to more than 11 years of running non-stop. There's a lot more that could be said about concentrators, most of it unnecessary, and you do now have some references to look at if you need more information. Don't forget that in a small hospital, as the anaesthetist, you are probably the only one with an understanding of compressed gases and oxygen therapy. Do visit the wards, special care units, emergency room and maternity to show people how to make the most effective use of this vital resource. I mentioned the project that I did in collaboration with Dr David Peel in Egypt some years ago. As we travelled round, there was an Egyptian colleague with us who was looking after us, making travel and other arrangements, and doing lots of admin. His previous job 
had been exporting tomatoes to England. He didn't have any medical background at all, but he did sit in on all our training centres. After a week, he came to me, looking rather shocked. He said, do you realise, Mike, these people don't understand the difference between pressure and flow? There are lots of smart people around. Make sure you help them get even smarter. Thanks for listening. If you found the podcast of interest, do tell your friends and colleagues and subscribe for more at your usual podcast provider. That's all for now. From me, Mike Dobson, until next time, it's goodbye. Goodbye.